Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Michael Suarez. I'm the director of Rare Book School. I'm honored to uh, welcome all of you to this, the first of our series of summer lectures. Uh, I'd like to thank the library for allowing us to use this space, uh, even though some very insignificant group called the Board of Visitors has prevented us from using it on Wednesday. The Wednesday lecture will be tomorrow on Tuesday because the BOV will be meeting in here since the rotunda is under construction. Um, I'm also very grateful to the Mid-Atlantic chapter of the ABAA who have very graciously sponsored this lecture tonight. Perhaps fittingly for a bookman, I first met Bill Zacks in print and not in person. Uh, myself, a sometime student of the 18th and early 19th century book trade, uh, the first John Murray and the late 18th century book trade, Bill's first book was warmly recommended to me. And I read it with great interest and engagement and then was deeply disturbed to find out that the person who wrote this extremely erudite tome was merely a young British Academy fellow. That was all the way back in 1998 that your book came out. Um, Bill is also the author of Without Regard to Good Manners, a biography of Gilbert Stewart, published by the Edinburgh University Press. He's originally from Hartford, Connecticut, but he's lived for more than 30 years in Edinburgh. And he has a very bookish life there where he lectures on book history. He writes about 18th century Scotland. He's curated a number of exhibitions and produced uh, very notable exhibition catalogs. Um, Bill has had a signal effect on the bibliographical and book collecting scene in Edinburgh, in Scotland, and indeed in Britain and the Anglo-American world more generally. Um, in 2013, the University of Edinburgh awarded him an honorary doctorate for his services to bibliography and the curation of the book. But his star has risen still further because in 2015, Bill delivered the Rosenbach Lectures under the title Authenticity and Duplicity, Investigations into Multiple Copies of Books. And those lectures will be published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Bill is a great citizen of the bibliographical community. He's working on a book right now on Dr. Hugh Blair, and I hope you'll join me in welcoming him so that we can hear his wisdom on the subject. Bill. Good evening, everyone, and uh, thank you for inviting me here uh, to speak at Rare Book School. It's a great honor, and I'm I know you're all tired after the first day is the hardest. You've been working away and 30 
nine and a half minutes more of nerdy bibliography and the booze will start to flow. In January of 1795, the Reverend Hugh Blair, pictured here, who was then 76 years old, wrote in a letter to a friend the following. I am sitting at present to my picture by Henry Rayburn, our great artist here. I sit not with the formality of a wig and ban and gown, but in my study with the black velvet cap, which I'm accustomed to wear at home, and with my books and papers at my side. The picture is far advanced and reckoned to be a very like one. Of this I cannot judge, but I think it will be a good picture. And then he went on to tell his friend, I feel not the least effects from my fall down the stairs in summer. I regularly use the alkaline aerated water, something we all might take up, which appears to contribute much to my health, and at present I have neither gravel, nor gout, nor piles. Hugh Blair at this time was among the very best-selling, if not the best-selling author of his day, and not just in Scotland, but in Britain, and conceivably in the world. And this assertion, while perhaps not conclusive, is based on records in the archive of the printing and publishing firm of William Strawn and his successors, based on information in correspondence, and based on the sheer evidence of the number of books which bear his name. Blair, though now almost completely forgotten, how many had heard of Hugh Blair before today? Okay, more of you have your hands down, fair enough. And little, if at all, read, I won't ask if anyone apart from Michael has read the Reverend Hugh Blair, but arguably he was an 18th century J.K. Rawling. Had his reputation endured in the way that some of his contemporaries had, David Hume, Robert Burns, for example, J.K. Rowling, Trivium Totalis, might have been regarded as a 20th and 21st century Hugh Blair. The parallels between their first important works make of them what you will. Blair hesitated to publish, fearful of rejection and criticism, and it wasn't until his 49th year that his first work came out. J.K. Rowling's well-known was rejected by more than a dozen publishers. The first edition of Blair's Sermons, published in 1777, came out in a run of 500 copies, and Blair received 100 pounds from his publishers for this work. That was a relatively substantial sum for the time, perhaps equivalent to 20 or 30 thousand dollars today. Not a, a small change. The first edition of Harry Potter, published 220 years later, also appeared in a small run of 500 copies, and Rowling received a rather paltry 1,500. 
pound advance, enough for two or three months' rent, perhaps, of, in her Edinburgh flat, maybe four months, and a few cups of coffee in the various cafes she is known to have frequented in Edinburgh to warm up while she was writing her book. Both works uh, were immediate successes to such an extent that multiple editions followed within months and for many years uh, afterwards. Blair went on in the next 25 years to publish four more volumes of his sermons, selling over 150,000 authorized copies. And I will explain in more detail what I mean by authorized copies, but suffice to say at the moment that these are the copies produced by the bookseller and publishing team who, who, were, who paid him for uh, the right to publish. As many uh, copies, as many editions again, were published in his lifetime in what might be called, of what might be called unauthorized editions. And I'll explain again what these, these mean. Uh, in this unlikely genre of the sermon, in this age of enlightenment, uh, he became one of the most, if not the most popular authors of his day. It was not only as a minister that he had a post, but as a professor at the University of Edinburgh, as the professor of rhetoric and belles lettres, the first uh, chair of this kind established in Britain, what we might call the modern day uh, English literature. And when he retired uh, in 1782, he went on to publish these lectures. And they, equally perhaps, perhaps even more so, became a highly successful work not just in their form in which he first published them, but in an abridgment that appeared one year afterwards, an abridgment as it happens, I believe, to, be, to have been edited by Gilbert Stewart, a friend of mine mentioned earlier. Uh, this abridgment was taken up in America in early editions at the end of the 18th century, and then in the 19th century alone, over 100 editions were produced in America. It became the standard text for the teaching of the discipline that we would call English literature uh, in pretty much all of the English-speaking world. Uh, J.K. Rowling, of course, publishes six uh, more Harry Potter volumes, selling, as they say in McDonald's hamburgers, billions and billions. But Blair's deal to publish his sermons was first formulated not by this figure, William Strong, the great uh, printer and publisher of London, though a Scot by origin, but initially by Strong's colleague in Edinburgh, Andrew Kincaid, and his partner, William Creech, who set up the deal and invited Strong to come along. Strong took on the the book without having read a word, and you can read for yourself what he said when he did read the first sermon. Uh, to William Robertson, his uh, most highly paid author and close friend of Blair's, the historian and principal of the University of Edinburgh, 
uh, he said, there is not one striking sentiment. There is a tameness and a poverty of language which I fairly own I did not expect to meet with in a performance of Dr. Blair's and in the direct line of his work. Samuel Johnson is presumed, if you read the life of Johnson, to have been closely involved in the, the, the promotion of Blair's sermons. But Boswell rather embellished the role that his hero played in this, if you look closely at the, the, the related correspondence. But he concluded, I love Blair's sermons, though that dog is a Scotchman and a Presbyterian and everything he should not be. I was the first to praise them. Blair himself, we get a hint of the vanity from that letter about his portrait, told Strawn, the sermons are mostly of a popular and sentimental kind, intermixed with one or two of a more philosophical cast. And to an aspiring minister who thought he would get on that bandwagon of sermon writing and write his own bestseller, he said, I have been so lucky as to hit in my strain of composition the present taste. In his lectures on rhetoric and Bellette, Blair devoted an entire chapter to the subject of eloquence at the pulpit. Here he looked at the manner of delivery of a sermon and also the, the best way to translate that delivery into a printed form. The, a French sermon, he remarked, is a warm, animated exhortation. An English one is a piece of cool, instructive reasoning. The union of the two kinds of composition forms the model of a perfect sermon. And this was characteristics of Blair's prose style, a balanced, a moderate approach, nothing too drastic. And similarly, with the lectures, he remarked to Strong on the uh, brink of publication, I grounded my lectures on plain common sense so as to be intelligible to all without any abstruse metaphysics. In his lifetime, and more so afterwards, Blair's reputation rose uh, to the point that in 1807, a writer in the Critical Review could remark, if we accept the spectators, the work of Addison and Steele of the early part of the century published in multiple editions, we think Dr. Blair's sermons are the most popular work in the English language. George III, the king, uh, said, every youth in his kingdom should have a copy of the Bible and Blair. And rather humorously, and this no doubt was the case, and the evidence of unread copies of Blair proves it to a certain extent, it was almost a mark of vulgarity not to have read them, and many a lie was told to escape this imputation. You will note that in the course of this lecture, I will not recommend the reading of Blair's sermons, although I will read in closing an excerpt from, from them. Jane Austen, uh, such was Blair's ubiquity, uh, mentions Blair, Blair's sermons in her novels, as does Walter Scott, and later in the century, uh, Thackeray and others. The tide was to turn, however, and the view that William Strong first proposed prior to the publication, was to take, take on more significance, perhaps. Leslie Stephen, the 
a literary historian, father of Virginia Woolf, editor of the Dictionary of National Biography, put it bluntly when he said, Blair is a mere washed-out retailer of second-hand commonplaces. Briefly, some of the key events in the life of Hugh Blair. Uh, born in Edinburgh, son of a merchant and grandson, more significantly, of a bookseller, Alexander Oxton, an interesting character in his own right. After attending Edinburgh University, he's licensed to preach, and he works his way up the ladder of Scottish uh, churches to the, the High Church of St. Giles at the center of Edinburgh, still the, the prime uh, post for a Church of Scotland minister. In 1759, he began following the, the path of Adam Smith, who'd gone off to Glasgow as a professor, to lecture on rhetoric and belles-lettres uh, in Edinburgh. And as a result of being the, 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 the deliverer of these public lectures, he was offered a chair that was newly established at Edinburgh University, the Regis Chair of Rhetoric and Belles-Lettres. I don't know if there are any graduates of St. Andrews University in the audience here, but there is a debate, still raging, if a debate of this kind can rage, whether rhetoric and belles English literature, as we know, it was first taught in Edinburgh or St. Andrews. In any case, Edinburgh has the chair with Hugh Blair as the first holder. Uh, a year later, he was embroiled in the affair of Ossian, Many of you will know about these, these uh, poems that appeared out of nowhere, thought to be the Homeric creations of, of, a, of a Scottish bard, a Celtic bard, translated by James Macpherson, uh, but in fact the fabrication of Macpherson's imagination. Although they were wildly popular and successful in Europe and indeed in Britain, uh, they were not what they purported to be. Dr. Johnson saw through this, Hume saw through this, Hugh Blair did not. He wrote a very uh, important critical dissertation on the, the poems of Ossian that was published and prefixed to editions of Ossian uh, and never to his dying day let go of the belief that these were genuine. The death of his friend David Hume, and there's a rich, uh, extensive correspondence between the two that tells us a lot about the two men, in my view, opens up an, an opportunity for Blair to enter more uh, meaningfully on the, the literary stage and publish his sermons. Hume, I can guess, although there's no concrete evidence, shared the view that Strawn would have had about the sermons. But with Hume out of the way, so to speak, Blair took the opportunity to prove them wrong. And so he did. Volume 1 was published to much acclaim, five editions in the uh, first year alone of publication. Uh, two years later, a further volume with 15 more sermons follows, uh, and three more uh, between that period and his death in 1800. The last, the fifth volume, published just after he had died. He retired from the professorship. Uh, it's quite unusual, except in, in the present company, to have a, a, a distinguished person who was both a minister in the church 
and a professor of English literature. A role model, perhaps, for all of us. Um, those lectures are published, he revises them, they exist in student notes, and Blair is concerned that some publisher will get his, printer and publisher will get his hands on these student notes and produce an inaccurate edition. So Blair engages Strawn uh, and his two colleagues, Thomas Cadell, the, the London bookseller, and in Edinburgh, William Creech, to publish this volume. 1,500 pounds is the the fee he asked for and the fee he receives. Um, and this abridgment, which I mentioned, is published soon after by John Murray, edited by Gilbert Stewart. Um, that's my long-winded introduction. Maybe I should stop there and let us all get on for a beer, but I will just scurry along with, to tell you a bit more about my project. What got me started on Hugh Blair were these letters here. 44 letters were offered to me uh, by a Glasgow bookseller. Some messy divorce, I think, was the result of his having to part with them. I uh, bought them and thought, well, now I'll get on with the editing of these letters and find out about this Hugh Blair. The uh, recipients and the publishers we've mentioned already, William Strawn, Andrew, Andrew, who succeeded him in the printing business. Strawn is, of course, a very wealthy man from his printing business, member of parliament, etc. Creech in Edinburgh, and Thomas Cadell, the bookseller, who succeeds uh, Andrew Miller, a Scot who'd come down to London, published and uh, book and sold books very successfully, many of them in collaboration with William Strawn. In a volume of uh, letters from David Hume to Strawn, which George Birkbeck Hill, the great uh, editor of uh, The Life of Johnson and other works, uh, published in 1888, we get a clue to the reason why these Blair letters, among others, were in the marketplace in about 1995. In a footnote, uh, Birkbeck Hill says the lead they belonged, this is referring to the Hume letters, to Mr. F. Barker, a dealer in autographs to whom I've expressed my acknowledgments in my edition of Boswell's Johnson. I may add that he has also lent me a large and curious collection of letters written to William and Andrew Stone by men of letters and publishers, chiefly Scottish. Of these I have made some use in my notes. It would be a great pity if the dispersion which threatens them were not averted. Well, that dispersion was not averted, and 44 of a number of much greater number of letters, not only from Blair but to others, as mentioned, uh, came my way. Where the rest are is still a matter, to some extent, of speculation. Um, the Hume letters were acquired by the Earl of Rosebery, the fifth Earl. Um, we know him as a great book collector, but he also happened to have another job as the Prime Minister of Great Britain. Um, since acquiring and sitting down to edit these letters, I have found 22 uh, further ones from Blair to his publishers. Um, in a way, this is the story of, of collection development, where uh, these letters haven't been acquired by me, but these are, as you'll see in a moment, in institutions around the world. 
My edition also includes 25 letters that uh, mainly that Strawn wrote to William Creech, and these are deposited in a public archive uh, in, in Scotland. These letters have been included in, in excerpted ways because of the points where they relate to the publication of Blair's works. And the four other relators, such as the other related letters, such as the one to uh, William Robertson. Uh, this just gives you a little list of, of where these letters are. Um, the two I would just highlight are the, at the Morgan Library and the four and one at, at Harvard in the Hyde Collection. And these have been incorporated into what we call extra illustrated editions, in both cases the life of Johnson. Uh, you, I won't go into detail about what an extra illustrated edition is, but the, these letters from Blair were in circulation and at least two of them ended up there. I am looking for more, and if anyone has any good ideas about where they might be, please let me know. One which I've highlighted in blue came up in auction uh, in San Francisco a number of years ago. It was bought by a dealer and made its way. Uh, I did not bid on it because there was something better in that auction. That's another story. Uh, uh, but it made its way at quite a high price to the National Library of Scotland. Nearly the price for that one letter that I had paid for my 44 letters. Uh, the elements of my project, uh, as I've suggested, are uh, an annotated edition of the letters. Uh, but reading these letters, it became clear that this project could not be properly uh, understood without a detailed bibliography of the lifetime editions of Blair's works. It pained me to limit it to his lifetime because it's really afterwards that the, a, a very uh, different and important story is told. But I've left that to others uh, and uh, whom I've, who are now working on that, in fact. Um, it began as a two-part book uh, with introductions to the two elements. But what I've since realized is that there's so much rich material, mainly in the footnotes of these letters and in the notes relating to the bibliography, that I'm now sort of am broadening out that into an extensive narrative, in a sense a biography of the publication, the making of the two uh, main books produced by Hugh Blair. Um, but there are sort of more uh, ambitious aims in this project, uh, to go inside the printing houses of Edinburgh and London, the two places where the editions were, were printed and uh, mainly sold, but also in those other places, Amsterdam, Philadelphia, uh, to see how these books were made. Um, aspects of the bindings of the books, uh, how they're sold, how they end up in different libraries and collections, how they appear in auction and other bookseller catalogs is another aspect of the story. In a sense, I want to trace the development of Blair's ideas from his own mind, from the manuscripts he produced, to the printed page, and then to the reader and to the wider world, to see uh, how this story unfolds through the evidence, the material artifacts uh, that survive, and to answer in a way that clearly is impossible, but a worthy attempt, what happened to every copy of every edition of every book by Hugh Blair, uh, and in a sense, what happened to Hugh Blair. 
Um, this is a complete digression, which I have no time for, but I can't resist uh, t telling you about it. A couple of months ago, I was digging through some uh, court papers in, uh, in a legal library in Edinburgh, the Signet Library, and found this uh, court case relating to journeyman uh, bookbinders who were uh, arguing for more pay. And the example that's given is what it would, not only what it would cost, but all the detailed aspects that would be involved in binding 50 copies of Blair's sermons. It's no accident that that was the choice that was made. They were binding 50 copies of Blair's sermons every week. Um, in the letters, Blair uh, talks about many different things. Sermon writing, he said, is the most difficult of all compositions without exception. To hit upon proper subjects, to give such beaten topics the grace of novelty, to be popular, etc., is, I do assure you, a work of continual labor and difficulty. Um, and of the publishing process, fair, uh, uh, and at all levels, the negotiations with, with uh, his booksellers, the production, the distribution, the advertising. Blair is deeply, far more deeply than those publishers and booksellers would have preferred, uh, deeply involved. On the subject of the abridgment, he says, this uh, has been published in one volume, and I think it was hardly fair how far it is actionable, meaning legally actionable, by the proprietors. He's telling Strawn, I cannot tell. At the same time, I question much if it will do you any hurt. Abridging a book is clear proof of its reputation and character. None but good or useful books are abridged. Even the vain Blair did not know how true this was going to be with those hundred plus editions to be published after his death. He discusses politics and war, particularly the American crisis, and he gives accounts of uh, friends, important figures like David Hume, Adam Smith, Robert Burns, and what their activities were, which, which we will glide over. On to the books themselves, the moment you've all been waiting for. Uh, these are some examples from my collection. Uh, it wouldn't be a lecture if I didn't get to use this. Uh, the two-volume quarto edition of the lectures, published in 1783 at a price of nearly uh, two pounds per volume, uh, copies in original boards, uh, other copies here, uh, a German translation of the lectures, uh, a Dublin printing of the lectures that is used as a Trinity College Dublin uh, student prize binding, and then the Dublin edition of the uh, abridgment, which is given the title The Essays on Rhetoric, also a student prize binding. Uh, the authorized uh, part of the bibliography, those editions published by Strand, Cadell, and Creech, numbers 75 and divides, as stated here, 67 editions depending on how you count them, issues, editions, states, it's rather complex and we won't, we won't go there at this time of day. And more straightforwardly, the lectures uh, on rhetoric, eight editions uh, in Blair's lifetime, the first in two volumes quarto and the next in three uh, octavo. You have, I think, the sheet and you can ponder this at bedtime, just giving the year by year the publication of uh, the volumes of sermons, when the, when the uh, 
Second volume is published in 1780. We're already on the ninth edition of the first volume. Um, I've uh, been looking at sets and sets of these uh, sermons. They come in two-volume sets, three-volume, four- and five-volume sets in all different combinations of editions. Unraveling why they're packaged in that way is a, is a matter of complexity that takes you into the printing house of Stran and takes you into the binderies, into the warehouses of booksellers. Uh, it's a, it goes on and on, and I'll spare you that. Um, Blair is very involved, as I said, in the production of his, his uh, books, and he uh, tells Stran when they're on the brink of bringing out uh, a second edition in the much less expensive quarto, uh, octavo format, he says, I have no objection to your bringing the book into an octavo form so as to lower the price, but I do not like at all your proposing to comprise it in two thick octavos, the ugliest form of a book, whereas it would make three handsome octavos, which you could sell for 18 shillings. That's just about half the price of the, the quarto original. This reduction, uh, all your misses, I am sure, should like it much better in that way. This was one instance where Blair was listened to by Strahan. The unauthorized editions, the second part of the bibliography, uh, has equal numbers of, of editions in Blair's lifetime, uh, with, although they break down in somewhat different ways. Sermons uh, with Irish, American editions, with translations into eight or nine uh, or ten uh, European languages, and then in a few instances the publication of some individual sermons. Similar uh, distribution for the lectures. These are books uh, for which Blair, for which his, the proprietors who paid him for the copyright receive no recompense. They are out there. They are important ways in which his ideas are disseminated globally. Uh, the foreign English imprints are interesting because those are, uh, those are most likely for use of uh, English-speaking people on the continent, students learning English. Uh, and then the essays on rhetoric, uh, which will explode in the, 20th, in the 19th century, rather, in those, in those editions. We have a Russian translation, we have a Swedish translation, a Hungarian translation of, of the lectures uh, in their full form that... Uh, has not yet been found. No copy is known. Um, and these refer, uh, in many instances, that like, like the Hungarian edition, we have the lost and ghost editions. Um, I will spare you the details of, of how uh, some of these have been uncovered through the fact of miscataloging. Blair is very messy as a, as a bibliog bibliographical project, and particularly for the their cataloging. Because of the complexities of these multi-volume sets, each with a different edition statement, how does a cataloger handle that? How, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bookseller on ABA Books who's been offering a set, uh, and I think I've now emailed him three separate times over the last ten years asking him to tell me which editions are in, the, which volumes are which editions, and he's, he's quite annoyed with me by now. I haven't bought the book. Uh, more representationally, you see the, the equal uh, distribution uh, of the, the sermons and lectures and the, uh, 
the fact that about 80% are sermons and 20% uh, lectures. Uh, now, I should spare you the real nerdy bibliography, but just as one brief sample from my uh, list here, uh, the elements that you would expect, uh, contents, collation, uh, press figures, paper, uh, references, I'm going to be adding uh, OCLC references to this. Um, I myself am a contributor to ESTC, one of a handful of uh, private libraries that contribute their holdings to, to that great project. Um, my Blair uh, books have not yet gone in. Uh, that's a, a task that I will uh, perform with relish very soon. Uh, each entry has, in some cases, extensive notes uh, listing the copies consulted and um, giving uh, evidence where, where it's available. In the case of the first edition of the sermons, we know from a record in an auction catalog of a large paper uh, copy having uh, existed. And we know it, it supported by that is the fact that Blair mentions uh, uh, some special fine or large paper copies uh, being, but none has yet been found uh, by me. Only in ESTC, only uh, four or five copies of the, the first volume of the first edition of the sermons are recorded. 500 printed, four or five uh, extant. Uh, in Strand's uh, ledger, he records the, uh, the, the breakdown of the costs, his share of the cost, and it's from that, he's not printing the book, the book is printed in Edinburgh, that, but from those costs, nevertheless, that we can extrapolate how many copies were printed. Uh, information about advertisements tells us about cost, of course, and binding styles, and uh, dates of publication. And the challenge that intrigued me most was to figure out who the printer of this first edition, the first five editions, in fact, was in Edinburgh. And using a very kind of uh, close analysis of the press figures in those volumes and comparing them with a handful, about a half a dozen printers in Edinburgh who were active at the time, whose works we could be identified categorically as having been printed by them, Relatively few printers in Edinburgh and Scotland use press figures, but among those that do, there was one whose works corresponded most closely with uh, the, the, the press figures in this book, the firm of Murray and Cochrane. So unless I get some good argument otherwise, which I would welcome, um, I, for the moment, have concluded that they were the printers of, of the first five editions of Volume 1. I'm struggling to find that same answer to the first edition of Volume 3 when it was published in 1790. I know Edinburgh was the place of publication, but um, the answer still uh, eludes me. Among those first editions, there were two issues of, uh, of the work of the title page, one for the Edinburgh market and one for the London market. Uh, and again, you'll see from your sheet, these uh, copies of these are extremely rare. Uh, and some not even found. Uh, after the sixth edition, Strand says, this is a real winner. I was wrong, uh, but I'm taking on the printing of this. I can do that more cheaply. The majority of copies are being sold in London, and at a period when, uh, with war, with a war raging, and John Paul Jones uh, at the seas piratically, uh, 
it was difficult to transport books uh, cheaply and safely uh, between Edinburgh and Scotland. There is some talk of printing editions simultaneously in both places, but that uh, doesn't quite happen. So Blair takes on the, from the sixth edition, and then we have very detailed records of the print runs. This is a, a sheet I won't dwell on. You can take it home and ponder that uh, with evidence of the copies in ESTC, excluding my copies, I should add, which we'll, we'll come to in a moment, and the, the print runs. There doesn't seem to be that much correspondence between print run and survival of copies, at least as reported in ESTC. I have checked in OCLC with the rarer ones, and they have, it has not really added significantly to, to the numbers. Um, the numbers of print, printed copies are, in both cases, quite substantial. Um, here you see for the first edition, uh, I, I, it, it interested me to know, just in terms of uh, library collection policy and library holdings, you know, what, what did the, the obvious libraries, like uh, the National Library of Scotland or Edinburgh University, have? And as an example just of the uh, first edition, you can see five out of 23 editions and three at, uh, at Edinburgh University. Uh, in the National Library, and if, when I polled people about this, they would expect, if I said to you, how many, what percentage of the 150 editions would you expect the National Library to have? You might say 50 or 75 percent far lower. Um, there are good reasons why the library would not want to collect 20, all 23 editions of Blair's, the first edition of Blair's sermons. There are only uh, substantive textual changes in the first six. Uh, anyway, 17 out of the 68 for the sermons, the authorized editions, um, more or less a complete uh, hit for, for the lectures. They, they do have volume seven on microfilming, could easily pick up a copy if they thought it was worth worth their while of, of the lectures. Uh, unauthorized editions of the sermons, quite a low uh, reporting, and this is an area where the library would actively buy whatever they could, whatever they didn't have uh, of, the, of, of Blair. And equally, uh, doing quite a bit better with the lectures and essays at 46%. Um, overall total of, of the 150 uh, plus items, 30%. Um, make of that what you will um, for the moment. Uh, we'll, we'll skip over this. Uh, this I, think I've, I think I've covered this already. Um, now on to collecting Blair. Um, I have systematically been attempting to uh, build up a Blair collection, not for its own sake, but mainly because of the rarity of many of these editions and issues, the only way to do, do the job properly uh, has been, if it wasn't possible to travel to New Zealand or Poland, and in some cases I have, uh, to, to find these copies myself. Uh, and so far, uh, at least with the first, I, of the first edition, of the first volume of sermon, I have now accumulated 13 of 23 editions. Um, as I said, the, the process of collecting Blair, I have, I, or maybe I didn't say, I avoided that at first. Blair was part of a bigger collection of the story of Scotland in the long 18th century, but as I said, from about the year 2000, I, I had to start accumulating these books. And uh, so far, 
I have uh, 69 out of the 151, 46%, uh, and you can see how this breaks down. There's also about 25 or 30 items that are beyond the scope of, the, of my uh, bibliography when a, when a Hungarian edition, not the one that's the lost edition, but one from the early 19th century appeared on the market. I had to scoop that up and other things like that. I've also had to accumulate about 25 or more uh, multiple copies. In some cases, I'm very happy, particularly with the rarer books like the first edition of volume one of the sermons to have them. In other cases, because of the groupings uh, by sets, there's been no choice. But binding differences, etc. There's one uh, copy of of a set, where volume three has a wonderful burn mark at the bottom of the of the book, um, and I can only imagine that someone was fell asleep under the candle reading Blair. It's no surprise, <laughs> and that was reason enough to buy the book. Uh, and here. I will not dwell on this, is list after list of each, uh, each edition I bought with booksellers and price, really just to, uh, again and again, all the familiar, uh, all the usual suspects from Scotland, from London, from booksellers, from eight books I've never heard of, um, Spanish editions. This was a killer in 2011. The exceedingly rare, known in only one or two copies, uh, first Irish printing of the sermons. Uh, stated as the third edition, but the first, because it's based on the third Edinburgh edition, but the first appearance in Ireland. Printed so identically to the uh, original Edinburgh edition that you wonder if other copies weren't given a false imprint to be imported uh, surreptitiously into Britain and sold. Very likely to be the case. Uh, Blair was pirated in Ireland and imported uh, into uh, other places. Um, but that copy is in a completely beautiful red Morocco binding. I'm sorry I don't have an illustration. Come to Edinburgh to see it. I welcome all of you. Uh, more and more and more and more. Even on... Uh, Hours before I left, this book arrived, scooped up on eight books, a second edition, second volume of sermons, the rare fifth edition, collated on the train coming down yesterday or whenever I arrived here, I don't remember. Uh, nice uh, female ownership inscription and three press figure variants. Wow. <laughs> All for 22 pounds. What a bargain. Now, the total cost, by way of conclusion, uh, of my Blair collection, if you exclude the 8,000 pounds I paid for the letters, which, while a substantial sum, I think was not, not, not bad going, about 180 pounds of volume, if you're interested in the economics of the uh, current antiquarian book trade, all those for, uh, let's say, 11,500 pounds, do the calculation, $16,000, $17,000. Would you rather have all of these wonderful Hugh Blair books or a first edition of that book that must not, that book that must not be named? <laughs> of course, just go to Abe Books, 
I've had to pastiche this in, but this was at one time an actual entry there. Uh, the, the dealer's name has fallen out of the, the image. $54,000. Actually, the price of Harry Potter is an interesting story. It's, it's, it's dropping of the first edition. And there we are. <laughs> No comment is necessary. Uh, I have to conclude with a, with a passage from the sermons just to save you the bother of thinking I really should read, would read them. Religion, like every regular and well-conducted system, is composed of a, of a variety of parts. I should have a proper Scottish accent for this, just like Hugh Blair, but I don't each which possesses its separate importance and contributes to the perfection of the whole, and so forth. Now, there, that, that should be the conclusion, but the, the sad fact is I have acquired a copy of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. I broke down and did that. And if you find yourself in New York uh, sometime after November, this quite special copy, arguably the best copy among the 500 million or however many that are out there, will be exhibited at the Grolier Club. Uh, thank you so much. In their day. Yes. Well, yes. I mean, this is the reason to look not only at two copies, but at as many copies as you can. I mean, is evidence of a book merely being set on fire evidence of it having been read? Well, yes, yes, and no. It was volume three. Did that mean they got through the other two unscathed? I don't, I don't know. Uh, I mean, we all know from our own reading habits uh, how many books are on our shelves and how many of them have been read from page to page. Sometimes, with, particularly with old books and at certain periods in history, there was, a, there was a, a, an overt uh, requisite to say, I began this book on so-and-so and I finished it on June 9th, 2015. Those records are, are wonderful when we get them. Uh, Blair is also extracted. He's commonplace booked in, in many instances. So you know, that, that story is one that fascinates me and that the, the examination of multiple copies uh, begins to tell you know, in, some, in some, some suggestive way, perhaps at best, but, in, but I think in some significant way when you really look at a lot of copies. Yeah. 
Well, Samuel Johnson's remark that he wished Blair would move over to the Church of England, I guess, says something about that. Blair is the sort of a departure from the hell and damnation Calvinism of, of the, you know, that inherited from John Knox. That's part of his, his great appeal. And it's, it's when the king and queen recommend his sermons that really they take off in, in England. That's the key. He got the imprimatur of, of the monarchs and he was, he was away. I mean, Strawn is not wrong in saying that these, they, these are, there is a tameness and a poverty in them uh, to a point, but you know, that was what the public wanted to digest. That's how, at least to some extent, they wanted their religion packaged. Uh, I find it fascinating that uh, Blair and David Hume are friends, they say correspondence, especially Hume is probably an atheist and did not Yes, there is a wonderful letter that Hume wrote to Blair where he says, look, we, we are good friends, we have a lot in common, but every time we discuss religion, you get, I get angry and you get, uh, you go quiet or whatever it is. And they make an agreement to leave off on that particular matter. They have their differences. Blair understands Hume as well as anyone of the day, but they just, to, to be friends, they overtly have to uh, draw a line in the sand about what they can and cannot discuss. So they do, they do uh, in the spirit of friendship, of enlightenment, of, of uh, discourse, uh, engage with each other in a meaningful way. Uh, Blair lives in Hume's house for a period, and, and they are they're the, on the closest terms. It's it is surprising when you think of the character of Blair, but it suggests, and when you read the full correspondence, you realize that there is much more to that to that friendship. Clearly, there was no poverty in any respect in this lecture, <laughs> unlike Blair's impoverished prose. And clearly. Bill Zacks is one of our number, and we are honored to have him in our midst. Please join me in thanking him for his Please join us for, how shall we say, a collation on the first floor of Alderman Library. You're most welcome in the Vera Book School suite. <laughs>